welcome to School Psych Podcast. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland, and we're really excited tonight to kind of, I think some of you might now actually be already in, in the midst of starting your school year, So, um, but we're looking to kind of kick off and um, maybe motivate some of us. Um, and um, I know Dr. Vander Hayden's got a lot of good tips and things for us on what we need to do as we go into this kind of mess of a school year, this different, very different school year from what we're used to. But I'm gonna pass it over to Rebecca. She's gonna talk to you guys about how to participate tonight, Rebecca. Hello, welcome everybody. So if you are watching us live, thank you for being here. And please feel free to log right into your YouTube account and you can comment in the chat box. If you would prefer not to have your uh, YouTube account name associated with your question or comment, feel free to message me on either of the Facebook pages, School Psych Your School Psychologist or the School Psych Podcast page, or even on Twitter, at Becca Kamiz, you see my handle on the screen there, or uh, the School Psych Podcast, um, it's called at, at Podcast Site on Twitter. So I'll be looking for notifications and we look forward to hearing what you're thinking as we're getting really, really close. Some of you are back this week, some of you are gearing up. We can't wait to hear uh, how you're feeling, what you're thinking, and we certainly can't hate, wait to hear the reassuring messages from Dr. Vander Hayden. But before I go on and on and on, I'd like to um, also note that as a school psychologist, it's so important to have a strong support system in your career, and it's instrumental to find placements and opportunities that fit your goals. And that is why we are proud to sponsor with Spot, sorry, <laughs> proud to partner with Advanced School Staffing, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide. School psychologists um, in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of W-2 employment status along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options. Advance is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about advanced school staffing and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your career, visit advancedschoolstaffing.com forward slash school psyched exclamation mark. Thanks so much. And now I'm going to pass it off to Eric. All right. Thank you, Rebecca. My name is Eric and I'm a school psychologist in Connecticut. And we are excited to talk to Dr. Amanda Vander Hayden again. Um, she's been a recurring guest here and always has incredible things to share with us and tell us. And we're going to talk tonight about how to hit the ground running this school year, some things we can think about, consider, be wary of, attentive of, etc. cetera. Um, I've introduced Dr. Vander Hayden a couple of times. She is the author of one of my most favorite books on RTI and learning disabilities assessment, along with uh, Joe Kovaleski and Ed Shapiro. Um, it's such a great book, and I believe it's on its um, secondary printing soon. Uh, we, we are finishing the second edition now. In Yay. fact, I think I have the last chapter. <laughs> Joe's Fantastic. waiting. He's he's prompted me a couple of times, but you know it's funny because it's all new content. It's really good. Uh -huh. It's so good. We had so much fun writing it. It's such a good book. So I'm looking Thank forward you. to the second edition. So Thank you. Yeah. Well, Dr. Vander Hayden um, has been in the field for quite a while, over 20 years experience, has taught college level um, has worked as a practitioner and currently runs Spring Math, springmath.com, uh, where she is a leader in instructional development and math intervention. And she could tell us a little more about that, but you can find out more about springmath.com at springmath.com. <laughs> <laughs> so 
Uh, but we're excited to talk with you again, Amanda, about so many things, school psych related and educational related. And uh, we're always glad to have you on because you have so much wisdom in the field of psychology, not only regarding uh, school psychology, regarding assessment and intervention, but um, the field uh, as a whole. So welcome, Dr. Vander Hayden. And Thank you. I, I feel that way about you guys. I mean, it's so oh. nice. It's so important for colleagues to connect. This is going to be a very difficult year, I'm afraid. I mean, we can do it, right? We can do it. But it's more important than ever to know who your tribe is and be able to reach out. And you know what? So many people help me all the time. Like last week, Alan Coulter sent me a note out of the blue and just said, I'm thinking about you. And, you know, you have this great tool. And as equity gaps worsen, which is going to happen, you've got to be ready to do that work. And I sort of said, well, I'm despondent about it. And he gave me this great you know, suck it up kind of, <laughs> he said it much night more nicely and encouraging than that, but I, it's exactly what I needed to hear. And we, we just, that's what our field is like. I was telling my spouse, it's like people reach out and we, we care about each other and the, because the work is so important. Yeah. So, so. I think one of my, my big questions is <laughs> like, what there's got to be some triage right like we're going into so much that we don't know like where do where do i start when i first am and on the clock for that next yeah year? well okay so <laughs> <laughs> mike i we actually kind of map this out and i think if you're you know working this year as a school psychologist first of all be kind to yourself most likely your own personal life is upside down Right. I mean, I was just saying before we started, like most people are hanging on by a thread um, because most of us have children. And so we're also worried about, you know, thank God I don't have little children anymore. I can't imagine trying to care for little children plus work. And some of our, you know, one of our big editors in our field is, is in that boat and, and is somehow still running a journal and publishing research and doing magnificent work. So and I several colleagues in special ed, same kind of boat. So be kind to yourself. And even if your children are older, most likely there's a little bit of cognitive load in your mind around what's going to happen with them. Are they okay? Are they safe? Should they go see their friend tonight? Should they not? Should you keep them home? So there's a lot of like that going on too, that, that takes some mental energy. So, so be kind to yourself. But then in terms of a game plan, I mean, you got a 36 week school year and in most parts, a lot of parts of the country in the South, it's already begun. So what I would do is I would be thinking about these are the ways in which schools may or may not return, right? So you could be virtual all year. You could have a delayed start to the school year. You could have a hybrid that starts right away. And no matter what you have, you will have disruptions. And the other thing that's gonna happen is we're gonna learn and hopefully things will change. So that's a good thing. Sometimes that can be frustrating because people want to know what are gonna be all the rules for the year, right? How is this gonna work if there's an infection, if there's whatever? And we can't know all of that right now. So the CDC guidelines are like a starting place. But I mean, I, I really actually think it's healthy. And I wish that our leaders would look at the ways in which things are opening and kids are going back to school as a grand experiment that we can learn from. 
and we should learn from, right? Because what we might learn is that, that we don't need a 14-day quarantine. Maybe that will change. Maybe that will become a seven-day quarantine. That would be a good thing for school. So I really hope people can be tolerant of some of the recommendations are going to unfold as we go, because at the end of the day, that's good. That's a good thing. We can't know everything about this novel virus that's never existed before until we sort of work our way through it. So, you know, I would start with these are these are the conditions under which schools might reopen. And then as a school psychologist, what are the ways in which I can plug in in each format? So, you know, we did this over the summer with with the spring math tool with our work because we needed to be able to assist places to get off the ground and get get rolling. I mean, some of the takeaways, I mean, I could talk about each format. I'd be happy to do that and make some kind of targeted suggestions. But some one of the takeaways is you cannot turn over all of the learning to web-based assessment and web-based intervention. And a lot of people are talking about this in our field, like Ryan Farmer, I know, has been somewhat vocal on Twitter. And I love his work and I love the way he thinks. And, you know, he, he's all about the evidence. And he's I agree with what he says. I say the same thing, which is you're really on thin ice when you start talking about conducting virtual assessment and using those data to make especially high stakes decisions. So you, you just know, you have to know you are on thin ice if you go down that path. So one of the things that we, that I would recommend under almost all formats, except for full virtual full year, is that all assessment needs to occur when children are at school. And, and you know what? Places will do that research this year. And God forbid this happens again in the future, then we will have better information to know that we can, the conditions under which we can generate reliable and valid scores to to base decisions from but until then it's just you know in a way it, it goes against our ethical code as school psychologists to use those scores and we are not in so much of a crisis that we have to do that and step out on that limb so no matter what the vendors tell you it's unless there's really you know technical adequacy evidence for data collected in that way adequate technical adequacy evidence you really don't want to do that so like for for you know, let's say you have a delayed start to school. Well, certainly in-class screening, formative assessment, those kinds of data don't need to be collected until children return to school. If you have a hybrid model, easy peasy, when children are at school, get your assessments. When they are at home and you're connecting virtually, then use that time to, you know, ideally um, help teachers uplift instructional content and use what we know about the instructional hierarchy to make sure that the difficulty of the content is is appropriate for work that's going to occur in a somewhat supervised way. That's the challenge in a virtual environment. Um, so, you know, one thing I keep I've been saying to teachers is the key is that the student responding needs to be observable and observed by you so that you that can inform what you do. And that's all the assessment that you need as a teacher to work in that virtual environment. Um, the other the other thing that, you know, you know, I would say, because I have said it and I said this in some uh, webinars for NASP is that there's you don't want to start with static screening. You don't really need to. You can assume in most places that you will have a base rate issue. So you will have elevated risk. So you might as well start with something like class wide intervention. I just had a, an email pop into my head that I received from a kindergarten teacher today. She said, 
who was working over the summer with a student who who was uh, um, complaining, I guess, it, that her mask made it difficult to see what she was writing. And so this teacher who is amazing um, decided to get her like a, a, a elevated clipboard, like a leaning clipboard to write on. But it made me think, you know, we don't really know what people, like how distracting or how PPE in general is going to um, affect any of our assessments. Yeah, I mean, do, I think this is one of the ways on we that? can help, right? Mm -hmm. So Dave Hulock and I actually had this conversation early, like must have been May, um, maybe even earlier. And this is exactly what we talked about because he said, you know, you, somebody has to help schools and teachers teach children how to comply with the safety routines for lack of a, you know, maybe a behavior person would say that in a better way than me. But but it's true. I mean, there's real skill to that. Right. And so the first step in any behavioral intervention is to teach children how to exhibit that behavior and correctly wearing a mask is part of it. And I just flew this week and on the plane, you know, half the adults are like taking their masks down to speak <laughs> to each other. I'm like, that kind of defeats the purpose. What are you thinking? So can, you can imagine if 50 year old people are doing that, then of course, kindergarten children are going to do this. They're naturally going to do this. And what we don't want to do, um, I loved Dave said this early on. I agree with him is we don't, there's gonna be a sense of anxiety, particularly in the beginning. We can be helpful to that because teachers will naturally be anxious. First of all, teachers are very afraid. I mean, it's palpable, right? And in many places, that's why they're not opening and they should be because the positivity rate is low enough that they really should be. It's hard, it's, it's more harm to not engage in face-to-face -face instruction when the positivity rate is very, very low. And it's interesting because very few places are talking about that, which makes me very sad and very upset. But um, but there's going to be anxiety. So teachers may be prone, and you can imagine this, you're responsible for 20 kids, maybe 24 kids, something like that. And children are taking their masks off. It might be very natural for a teacher to really be anxious and snap, right? And we know that that runs counter to everything about good behavior management. So we want pre-correction. We want antecedent procedures. We don't want contingent negative attention for, for not complying with the safety routine. And we certainly don't want a teacher to inadvertently elevate the anxiety, right? Anxiety is contagious. So to elevate the anxiety in the room. And then the next thing you know, a couple of um, maybe sensitive children are crying because the teacher has snapped at somebody who took the mask off, right? It can all go downhill so quickly. And we don't want tears because we don't want droplets in the room. So, you know, this is a very, and then the teachers may be crying. So this could go downhill very fast. So this is how we can help. I mean, this is what we do. And the first, you know, return to school, even in a hybrid situation with smaller group sizes should really be about the school psychologist coming in and, and really partnering with teachers and starting with be kind to yourself you're going to feel anxious. Do a check-in. What is my energy? Do a check-in probably a couple times an hour. What is my energy, right? And, you know, here, let, let me help you set up your routine for children to comply with the social distancing guidelines that your school is going to follow. Um, what are the transition routines? Honest to goodness, there's some good things that can come out of this experience. My husband says all the time, he's an ER doctor. He says all the time, well, we should have been doing this for influenza for years. I mean, the, the truth is 
influenza has a higher mortality rate for people under the age of 17 than does COVID as far as we know right now. Um, so, so every year, lots of children die from influenza. That's the way it's been. And we do nothing to prevent that. We do not um, follow hand washing routines at school or do smart things like have children have their own materials during flu season. So they're not sharing. So schools are hotbeds of flu infection in a typical year. They won't be this year. They won't be this year. So that's a little silver lining. And we can continue that, you know, in future years, we could be smarter about that. Um, another silver lining is great teachers start the year off setting up great classroom routines anyway. And that takes intention and that takes very specific procedures. I have a great old book um, that I've used for years because my mentor wrote it when I was at LSU called Teaching Effective Classroom Routines. Has anybody ever seen this book, you guys? Oh, it's so good. I think it's, I mean, I think you can still get it, but it's it's mostly, um, I heard they're gonna do a second edition, but right now I think it's out of print. It was published by um, Sopris. And in the back, every routine has like a little checklist that you can print for yourself as a teacher. And there's all these great, like beginning of the year, set up these routines and they're all designed to, look, here's a picture of Gary Duhon. Do you know that name? He's a researcher at, at Oklahoma. So he's demonstrating how to do whatever this, this is the free time behavior routine. But there are routines for everything in this book. Like one of my favorites is the classroom ambassador routine. And that routine um, involves, you know, when you get a disruption, like a parent comes to the door, somebody comes to the door, you have a classroom ambassador, that's their role for the, for the week. And there's a little laminated page that set letter that says, welcome to our classroom. My teacher is busy teaching. Please have a seat and she will be with you in a moment or he will be with you in a moment. And so the classroom ambassador, when a person comes to the door, the teacher does not even look at the guest. Classroom ambassador goes, hands the little laminated card to the guest. The guest has a place to sit and wait. And the thing that's great about that is it allows the teacher to kind of finish the thought, get everybody engaged, and then deal with the visitor, right? Um, there's another one called the show me you're ready routine. It's to show me you're ready to go to recess routine, which means you have had a drink of water, you have been to the bathroom and you've got your math materials out with a sharpened pencil. And that way you're ready to go to recess because math is after recess. <laughs> right. So there's all these great little routines. Of course, it comes from like Rosenstein's findings that, you know, if you if you're seeing transition times that are greater than two minutes in a classroom, that is a known hit to academic achievement a measurable hit to academic achievement during the school year. So some of these ways that we set up our routines to manage behavior um, transfer, they translate to setting up safety routines <coughs> that we want children to follow. So another silver lining is even if you're working with a brand new baby teacher this year, you could, you're working on that with that teacher maybe to teach routines around COVID and they're going to be very motivated to collaborate with you to do that probably, which is great because that you don't always have a foot in the door in such a way, but this will be help them be masterful next year when, or the year after when they're working on routines that are not so much around COVID. I love oh, no. ambassador. What a great skill just for a child, you know, even in my house, I should be teaching that when the doorbell rings. <laughs> right. 
But I need that for my children, right? I should train my dog to, <laughs> to hand my children the note that says, mom is on a webinar, leave her alone. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was thinking though, what a great resource it would be if we could, if we could kind of create together um, a routine for, I did this for my school. We, I, I starred in this little video that teachers are gonna show their, their kids on how to use the handles to put on and on your mat, take on and off your mask, how to yeah. make sure your hands are clean so before you adjust it and, and things like that. But it'd be such a nice, um, you know, to have it in a visual and just be able to share that with every classroom. Such a great idea. Right. And then you could if you could share it and then other places could use it. I mean, that's we've created those routines around how to use Google Classroom and Seesaw to conduct math intervention. That, did, you know, not everybody's interested in that. But man, yours is like relevant to everybody because everyone is going to have to know how to do that. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, sometimes I think children can, you know, they're listening and they hear things and they really also may arrive at school somewhat terrified um, that they're going to die instantly, you know, and that that, um, you know, anything is going to cause them to be infected. So it's tough because you're, you want to impress upon them. This is we want you to follow this routine. It's important to follow this routine. But we don't want them to be terrified because yesterday Johnny got within two feet of me. So now I think I'm going to die. Right. Johnny broke the routine. So that's going to be an issue, too. And helping teachers message with children in ways that don't, you know, invite that fear and overreaction. And honestly, teachers, have, I think, are going to be susceptible to the same fears. You know, um, the thing is, I, it's. I have a front row seat because I've, I have a spouse in a very high positivity environment. I mean, we're in Alabama. Everybody has COVID. I know tons of people with COVID. I don't know anybody who has died. Thank goodness. Um, but he sees it every shift, lots of it. And he has not gotten sick. And most, nor have most of his colleagues. Um, only three total out of lots have gotten sick. I mean, only three have gotten sick out of total lots have not gotten sick, but all three have recovered. And so to me, it says, you know, PPE works when you use it correctly. And for a teacher, I think I would say to a teacher, you're talking about people who are going into it, known exposures, lots of it, and they are actively having body fluids, you know, on them and they're able to use PPE and not get infected. So for a teacher, we want to say, don't be terribly terrified. You know, use your mask, wash your hands. If there is an exposure and there is a quarantine, most likely you're you can keep yourself safe in a school environment. I think I saw you post something on Facebook about how, yeah, it's more likely that your husband is to get sick from community from, from our children kids bringing in things. Yeah. Yeah. Then from being, yeah, for sure. Hospital, you know, it's, is, it's so um, sort of mind numbing to, to me because we watched all summer as everything is wide open. And we said many times to each other, you know, local, all the high school kids and the recent grads, they all had it. They were the big spreaders, but they were also together all of the time, not wearing masks at the beach, mm -hmm. in the pool. Waterville stayed open all summer. Every restaurant and bar open all summer. 
And we said many times they would be safer at school wearing a mask than they are in the community. So yes, actually we quarantined our children for um, most of July because we didn't want them to get sick right before we went on our vacation to go hiking. <laughs> so it was sort of a selfish, and we told them, we said, you know, you're gonna be locked down. You gotta say no to everything. But when you go back to school, then it, you know things have changed as long as you wear a mask and wash your hands. Yeah, I've said too much on Facebook, haven't I? I need to. <laughs> oh, I love I love reading your your posts because one, you're so data driven, and so you post uh, a lot of great articles that are looking at the positivity rate and are looking at, at all these different things. And you also have the perspective of your husband, so I, I always find it interesting to read. I've been a little obsessed, but you know, I can just say for me personally, and I was I was terrified in in March, and I thought my husband was going to die. I really did. He isolated from us in the beginning. We got our wills out. We had a plan. We, we had to th have very grim conversations about what if we both get sick? What about the kids? Well, how will we navigate that? What's your blood type? I mean, we really had those conversations. And, um, and then as time went by, it's like, you know, the best treatment for anxiety, all, all anxiety treatments. And I'm not an anxiety re researcher, so I'm way out of line talking about this. But, you know, they all involve exposure. Always. I mean, effective treatments involve exposure, right? And so if you're exposed to it enough, you sort of begin to understand, well, death is not really imminent and PPE, thank goodness works. And actually very, very, very few young people die. Uh, very, you know, if I were, you know, obviously my mother is a different story. You know, it's a, you take different precautions based on the, the level of risk. So yeah, it's, it is interesting because I don't, I, I think this is like a grand demonstration that people are not logical. This is mostly, these are mostly sort of, you know, fear-based reactions. And I think in many cases, you know, superintendents and principals, unfortunately have been left to figure things out um, locally. And then I think it's a question of, can I get my people to follow me? Can I get my teachers to show up and and you know, as a you know, if you care about kids, you have to care about the adults who take care of the kids. Those are our teachers. I care very much about our teachers. I'm very worried about our teachers. But I also think that at some point, you know, we have to find a, a way, a path forward where, you know, ch children can go back to school. Because you know, right now, what's happening is there's the the consequences of learning in a virtual environment are are more distal. They're less discriminable, right? And so it's easier for people to be focused on what feels more immediate and not realize, you know, or think about there are most likely children who literally will never learn to read because they don't go to face-to-face -face instruction this year. And to me, that's, that's, that's a problem. So, you know, the other thing, too, is like, go read the Dreambox data, read the IXL data. You know, I, I, I bought IXL for my kids, but it is no substitute for a great math teacher, I have to say. And I saw that on a NASP listserv. People were sort of beginning to say, well, what are your favorite intervention tools? And so, of course, I posted all their research studies. And then I waited for the letter from Dreambox saying they're going to sue me <laughs> you know, because but the data are underwhelming. And even for really well-designed tools like Headsprout, 
It's a great tool. Joe Lang built it. Kent Johnson. Kent Johnson's one of my professional heroes, and it could not have been better designed. Both of my kids did Head Sprout. Did your kids do Head Sprout, Rachel? Oh, you would have loved it for your kids, you know, because it's really comes out of that tradition of teach your kid to read in 100 lessons kind of, but it's gamified. It's really cool. And anyway, um, even though it's super well designed, it has underwhelming data for the most part, you know, and I say that's because right at this point in time, the computer cannot replace the teacher. When you talk about too, um, you know this this highlights that people are not logical, and I yes, totally. Um, and at the, at the same point, because um, like you said, that this fear is a little bit illogical when, when we take proper precautions. I also go look around in my community and see that people aren't are on the flip side that they're not taking it also seriously. They're not wearing the masks. Um, right. You know, uh, so what I, I'm also worried about the teachers or the school systems that go in and public schools and schools in general, no matter what school, we're not always kind of this well-oiled machine where yeah. um, it's, it's chaotic, you know, yeah. it's chaotic. And so that worries me too, that are, are is everybody going to wear a mask? Are they going to wear it properly? Are they going to wear it? No, they're not. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I mean, I was on a flight last week and I, the, you know, somebody in front of me had the exhale valves, which basically like are worse than no mask, really, because now it's like this concentrated jet expulsion of any virus you might have into the air around you. And it's great that it helps you breathe a little better, but it is not protection for people around you. And then, you know, a couple people say they have a medical exemption. So there's people without masks, right? This, this is all changing because now airlines are saying, no, no, no more. Just don't fly if you need a medical exemption. Um, so I get it, but I had to like tell my, I felt a little anxious. I had to tell myself, you know what? 95% of people are properly wearing a mask. There's protection from that. You know, there is actually, I read a really good study early on because I did, I read the mask research and, um, there was a really good study that, that I have to remind myself, like, even if you get about, you know, 80% correct mask, mask use, you get this great reduction in viral spread. So that's okay. So it doesn't have to be perfect, right? And I'll tell you what, again, this is like my point about curiosity because, you know, like on Facebook, it's interesting because we're a lot of people I'm on Facebook with are researchers. And it's like we all have a diehard position that we've already selected. And I think this is part of what's terrible right now in this country because we need to have more of, a, of an inductive logic or a willingness and a curiosity to say, Things are proceeding in different ways around the country. Let's see what we can learn from those variations, right? We won't, we won't have experimental control, but like, you know, Houston's a good example because they, you know, it's Texas. So Texans always feel, my dad was a Texan. So it's like, you're, in, you're really, uh, a, that's a country unto itself. <laughs> he used to say, I'm a Texan first and a U.S. citizen second, you know? <laughs> so in Texas, you know, they were not wearing masks. They didn't want to wear masks. And then- Houston began to surge, right? And then they finally got a mask mandate. And it, it to me, it was like a reversal design because it the numbers began to come down. So we've seen that locally in my area, which is in the on the Gulf Coast in, in Alabama, we were surging and um, in Mobile, we were surging. And now, you know, we got, we finally got a mask mandate and, you know, I would not say people are 100% compliant. 
it, it didn't hurt when the grocery stores started saying, by the way, you can't come in if you don't have a mask on. Then they all followed suit and we got more mask compliance and our rates began to come down. So that is reassuring to me and says that can really it can really make a difference. Even if it's not perfect, it can make a difference. Yeah, that's been the conversation in my school as well. And besides the masks, the distancing and this, you know, the cohorting and the the change in uh, the percentage of outdoor air coming in, whereas normally we try to minimize outdoor air for seasonal allergies. Now we're really trying to maximize it and the HVAC is staying on overnight and all these things put together, um, you know, make an, a pretty nice um you know, mitigate the risk pretty nicely. But right. uh, so if one goes wrong, like you have one child who, you know, has trouble with the mask or if, if, you know, in a moment, two children hug or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't if you've got go a 90% and, solution, then you're still getting, you're getting some value from that for sure. And, you know, the, the other thing too, is like, as schools are going back, you know, it's like the media is so hungry to, put something sensational out and they're all saying, you know, oh, kids are sick. There's infection. We have positive cases. Of course, that's going to happen. You know, that is that was probably going to happen anyway. If you just looked at base rates and trajectories, it's possible they exchanged it at school. It is possible. Um, but infections will happen. It's just that we want to um, make sure that we don't have surges that overwhelm local healthcare capacity. I did, I did read a piece that a teacher wrote in Iowa and that teacher, it was a very emotional piece. And I, obviously the fear is very real and I get it, but this teacher said that one death is too many. Well, that is not logical because if that were true, no one would ever drive a car. Be, you know, it's just an, an, we do tolerate some risk of morbidity and mortality in our lives. And you can't have a position of zero risk because it doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. And, you know, cohorting, you mentioned that. I think that's really smart because it, anything, and, and we're data people. So we really should be listening. We're not epidemiologists, we're not medical experts, but we're data people. And what we should have an eye on are the things that can preserve and save instructional time. So in a 36 um, week school year, which is the average in the US, anything that saves a week is a good thing. And so cohorting can save weeks for kids. Because, you know, I, I read today in New York, um, the plan in New York City is that if there are two positive cases in a building, the whole building will close. But if you're really smart about how you cohort your kids, you don't have to do that, right? You can make sure first graders only ever get exposed to first graders. And then if a first grader gets sick, you only have to quarantine first graders. Or with older kids, you can have seating charts. This is what my son's school is doing. And if someone is sick in um, a classroom, tests positive, then they will look at anybody because the, defin the CDC definition of exposure is that you are within six feet of a positive individual for 15 minutes. That's an exposure. So it, you can find that from a seating chart, because if you pass them on the way to a seat, you were not exposed. But again, people have to be willing to be logical because people. That's why New York City is saying if there's two, we're closing the whole school. That's a little you know, that makes me feel like they're going to lose an awful lot of instructional time. 
there's such a balance, yeah, between between all of this and and um, what are your thoughts on? Uh, we were having this conversation the other day about you know we want to get in there and we want to hit the ground running with our academics, but there's also this social emotional thing. We obviously need to make sure that our kids are safe and able to learn and not traumatized and things like that. What are your thoughts on that? Is is there risk of hitting academics too soon, too hard? Or should we, for the sake of keeping things kind of school-like and more normal, should we go Isn't about it so funny that we pit those things against each other? And yet, I mean, what I would say is kids kids want that, norm, that, that normalcy. They want to, you know what they want to do? They want to be able to be a kid in school where, you know, they do, they do feel safe because there is a routine and the teacher and they are going to have an opportunity to learn and learning can be really fun. That that's, that's the real work of the teacher. And that's why we have to take care of our teachers and acknowledge their anxiety and really help them feel safe. Because when a teacher can feel safe, then the teacher can create that environment for the children where, you know, learning can happen and the child doesn't even know they're learning. <laughs> right. That's the that's the best kind of learning. The child is like, this is a game with my favorite teacher, <laughs> with my buddies. And I this is better than being at home in front of my computer. Right. Or with my mom, God forbid. And I think I'm doing a drawing activity, but I'm actually learning. Right. So I think they're one in the same. I mean, I hear you, but I do. I, and I do think it's really important that, you know, early on the teacher be tending to their own energy and sense of anxiety and invest the time. It takes time for children to learn the routines that they're going to need to follow this year. There's no need to feel rushed about that. You don't have to say, oh, my gosh, I've got to start classified math intervention. So I, I, I don't have time to do this or I'm going to create a sense of pressure. Teacher has to monitor that, you know, take a step back and say there is time. Let's let's work. Let's practice this together. This is really useful. The thing about like, you know, class wide intervention, for example, which you can use for reading and you can use for math. You could use it for writing. I've, I don't think I've done that. Maybe I have, but it's been a long time. Um, but you really theoretically can do it for any content area. Um, and the procedures are the same. The idea is it's a fluency building intervention. So you want a high dose of opportunities to respond. You increase the difficulty or the challenge of whatever you're working on as children demonstrate mastery. So they're always just sort of pacing along on instructional level work. And, you know, there are ways to modify class-wide intervention so kids are not on top of each other. They have some space. You can do plexiglass. You can have them work six feet apart. The teacher can be the peer buddy for the entire room and using a document camera. It's game-like, you know, it can feel game-like. The teacher can use response cards class-wide. The teacher can use whiteboards class-wide. Everybody's using their own um, tool, right, to write. Um, so there are ways to do that. But the, but the thing that's um, great about it is that children can feel engaged. Everybody is responding at the same time. Um, everybody grows when that when that is delivered. So that routine is is a great is a great way to um, reach all learners. It's by the way, it is an equity effector. It is an opportunity gap closer because when you provide all children with a high dosage of opportunities to respond at the right level of difficulty for important prerequisite and requisite understandings in the content areas, you enable proficiency, generalization, 
and mastery. I mean, we've we've shown this time and again in randomized controlled trials that you have um, disproportionate achievement by all kinds of demographic categories before intervention. And then after class-wide intervention, the gaps are closed, but only in the intervention group. Those are great. We had a question. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just yeah. going to say, I have a question that um, how do teachers find a balance between teaching these new routines with the pressure of being behind because of school closure, you know? Yeah, you got to let that go. We have to tell them that because, come on, I mean, just, people are just going to give teachers pressure like they always have, by the way. I mean, you know, that's always been the way it is with teachers. As the expectations go up, we just say, hey, you need to accomplish more, as if there's a magic wand, right? So, you know, the silver lining about the, the loss of 25% of the year last year, and I've said this several times to people, is that that is the interval of time in which the least amount of learning occurs for kids in the U.S. So really, I believe, based on just sort of math sequencing and content, that you could make up that gap with, with a one-month effort, four weeks of face-to-face -face instruction and some booster sessions. And I was I felt so strongly about that. We built those booster sessions into our tools. So a teacher in class-wide intervention can just say, I'd like to boost it, and we give them you know, the materials to do it. They have to put in another, find another 15 minutes, but they can easily close that gap in about four weeks. Um, that being said, this is not the year to set the world on fire. This is the year to not fall further behind. This is the year to, you know, check your energy. Do not create undue pressure for yourself and do not create undue pressure for your children. Create that safe environment in your classroom and say to your children, I'm going to meet you where you are and I'm going to take you as far as I can because that's all a teacher ever has to do anyway. Um, that's awesome. And I wanted to ask you, as you were talking about strategies to uh, encourage um, participation and, and fluency activities, I was thinking about uh, specifically in, in the like maybe in the beginning of the year, in the first couple of weeks, um, some kids, if there's universal masking between adults and, ki and children, may feel just anxious about the about social communication about and about reading emotion in uh, teachers language or just from the expression in their eyes and i feel like that might be an important kind of sel that could also probably likely be built in to anything that's academic like i can imagine you know all kinds of guessing games with the academic goals of like you know <laughs> guess guess the tone guess the emotion i am sharing with this with the right. tone of my voice or something like that um but i wondered in terms of equity there are going to be some some kids like kids maybe on the autism spectrum or kids with social anxiety who may struggle with the safety uh, uh the, the ppe and maybe other safety precautions more you know uh, at a greater uh, oh, yeah yeah. What do you think about mitigating some of that? Yeah, I think, again, that's that's where we can be valuable because we we know we have experience with helping um, identify fu what functionally what's the function right of the um, avoidance of the use or the incorrect use. We can sort of identify a piece that apart. You know, I think about some of like the great. Um, studies that figured out how to reduce task difficulty to improve engagement of kids who would avoid difficult tasks with by exhibiting disruptive behavior to escape those tasks. And there's some pretty 
cool things that you can think about. Well, are there ways to, you know, find a mask that has a different fit that ties in a different way? It's like, you know, those kinds of simple things that might work. I mean, you have to sort of get at what's the source of it. Right. And I mean, I don't I'll, I don't like wearing a mask. But I have found that some are more comfortable than others. And one of the things that's hard for me is I feel like I I communicate non-verbally with by smiling a lot. And it bugs me when my face is covered and nobody can tell I'm smiling. I must not smile with my eyes <laughs> because I'm like, I don't think you can tell I'm smiling, you know. But I wonder if, you know, like if I were a first grade teacher. Um, and I did actually hear some teachers are doing this at a school I just love in uh, Memphis um, of little kids. They have their picture on a button, the teacher's full face on a button, plus, since they're wearing a mask so their, so their kids can see their full face. I thought that was really cool and simple, you know, like almost like a campaign button. Um, but, you know, a teacher could a teacher could maybe be more aware that they might need to say, I'm smiling. You know, some teachers um, don't have great social skills with kids. And some teachers can be sort of disrespectful and sarcastic in their humor with kids. And this can be very confusing to, to children who maybe have not, they, they don't do that in their family. Like I know I did, my family was very serious and I, that would, would make me feel sort of shamed and uncomfortable. And I'm not sure, am I really in trouble or is this funny? I would, I would have not have been facile with that as a young child. And I was probably, I didn't want to get in trouble, but, um, but I think maybe even just coaching teachers to be more sensitive to that, right? That you yeah. you have to maybe and and teachers have to be willing. You know, they have to want to be kinder and gentler about that. Yeah. I've had those conversations with teachers without masks, where we we've really had to have a conversation about you know this is this is confusing potentially at best, and it's shaming and demeaning and uncomfortable in the worst case scenario. So if you can adjust your delivery, this might land better with your, with your kids. Um, I mean, I think again, that's, that's, that's what we should be doing, not testing kids in a back office on campus. Right. right. That's such a good point. It gives us a chance to get really explicit about uh, emotions matter as Mark Brackett says, <laughs> and um, uh, talking about um, tone of voice and the, the, the adults meaning behind their communication and their, their feelings. I mean, really, again, that's one of those silver lining things, because if you master that because a mask gave you a reason to, it gave us a reason to talk about it with teachers, they might do this better in, you know, in future years. Yeah. That's, you know, a really good point, too. Um, as you said, Amanda, you know, we often pit these things against one another, academics versus social and emotional, but they really you know, a good classroom teacher has that ability to sort of read the tenor oh, of yeah. the feelings and the emotions in the room and adjust accordingly. And it's always magical to me to see, you know, these gifted teachers that I work with who uh, manage classrooms that may be difficult to other right. people, would be difficult for me. Um, yeah. And they balance that and, and they adjust accordingly. And I think we have to, um, Really, as you said, intervention is going to be key right off the bat, establishing routines and really connecting emotionally, climate and culture, and um, and then working toward academic interventions while we're really sort of being patient, being gentle and kind, as you said, and yeah. um, 
being encouragers. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, the the person whose behavior I always want to change is the teacher. You know, but that's only because I understand that the teacher is the most essential active ingredient in learning. So, you know, we have this theory of change for in my world for math and the teacher is the center of the universe. That is the only everything we do with technology is only to be of use to the teacher so that the teacher can get a better result. Because it's that we're trying to create that teaching magic, like you just said. You know, um, there's a, there was a guy I was in graduate school with named Jim Connell. Um, he's in he's in Pennsylvania now, I think. Um, and I remember I was teaching him how to administer class-wide CBM using my kindergarten measures. This is back in the late 90s. And so I met him in Baton Rouge to do this. <laughs> and the teacher said, do you want me to do it? He's like, no, I've got it. And about 15 minutes later, he was so humbled. He was like sweating. He's rolled up his sleeves and he's like, well, we have to throw all that away. <laughs> and he was right. We did. And I mean, I was so amused. I loved it. But I, I always like then later when I trained graduate students, I would say to them, you know, the thing you're worried about that you have to manage for the teacher is their comfort zone. I mean, they are comfortable moving groups of kids around. They are not intimidated by having to herd second grade, you know, like herding cats, right? That does not intimidate a classroom teacher. But so you find their strength, like that's a strength, right? And you can find ways to just very genuinely and authentically build that rapport with that teacher to really honor the strengths that they bring, but help them through a place of trust to identify maybe ways to really exhibit that magic that you've seen and I've seen. I've seen great teachers do it. And, and what I think about is the teacher who can work with a child who has been so discouraged and demoralized academically and they don't even want to hazard a guess. They don't want to reveal anything. They don't want to say anything out loud about what they think. And this teacher has this ability to reach in and draw that out. Right. And I've seen that happen. And like, it's wonderful. If, you have, if you're a school psychologist and you've never seen that happen, go find it. Go find it and watch it. Because then you can say, how do I help? That's my model. Right. How do I recreate that with other teachers? you know, in a very authentic and collaborative way, right? It would be so easy if we could just write a prescription, but it doesn't work that way. I, I love that. And our teachers are amazing. And I, I saw a tweet uh, the other day from Sue from Sincerely School Psychologists. And um, she shared that because uh, she's in Arizona and they've been back to uh, virtual right. learning, I think uh, she went and observed a virtual classroom, which has gotten me thinking now too, like, cause I'm virtual for the first semester. So I'm, you know, how am I doing my observations? Am I going into Google meet with all these little boxes and watching <laughs> my kid and like, how's that going to work? But she said that, you know, the teacher was just had it down and it was like, they were doing it forever and the lesson flowed and everyone was engaged and she got a great observation. I was like, yes, like this is giving me hope yeah. that we can do this. You know, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, things are going to be different, right? And I mean, what we want is for people to try. So like one of the things that I recommended somewhere recently, I can't remember, but you know, there's, we just have to be innovative. So if, there, if, if option A doesn't work, option B doesn't work, you better figure out option C, right? Maybe option D, but like, you know, even a kid, let's say there's a kid who needs individual intervention and school's now shut down for a month and they're at home and they don't have internet connection at home. They don't have a device, right? I guarantee you they have a smartphone in their house. 
If they have a smartphone in their house, you can FaceTime. And you can, and you know what? More important than ever, what here's one thing we do poorly in school psychology, notoriously poorly. We are terrible about thinking about the yield of our efforts. We don't think about costs. So we look at, well, what's the what's an effective tool? What's an effective, accurate assessment? But we do not, historically, we have not paid good attention to how much accuracy for how much cost. But this year, if we are very, very thoughtful about that and we choose things that can be very efficient if you can get a 15 minute intervention and get the same effect that you can spend an hour intervention and get the same effect then do the 15 minute one because the 15 minute one you can possibly pull off like with a facetime situation and and then you have not lost it for that child and i think you know what you're not maybe you don't deploy that perfectly school psychologist in your whole school but if you manage to even do a little bit of that that'll be so much good for so many children who wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. That's awesome. That's giving me, uh, you're inspiring me because honestly, I feel like I'm going into the school year, um, like I feel like an intern again, you know, mm -hmm. um, where you're just kind of unsure of what's going on. And so I'm trying to, I know that I luckily have a group of people and colleagues and um, that I can reach out to and figure things out and work through it. But so much is unknown. You know, we don't really know how a lot is going to play out, um, you know, being virtual and remote. And same thing with people going back with the face masks and and all that stuff. So it's comforting to hear you have a more positive spin on it than my brain has been taking. So, yeah, I mean, we all feel anxious about it. I mean, I feel, you know, as I told my friend Alan, I feel despondent in some ways about what I know is going to be a negative hit for so many kids. And, um, you know, and he told me, suck it up. And it was good. I needed to hear it. And he said it much more nicely than that. And it was exactly what I needed to hear. But he said, you then get to work, basically. And, you know, that is a wonderful thing. I mean, I do know school psychologists have that skill set to make a positive impact. And maybe maybe it won't totally erase all of the negative that is gonna happen from this event, but it's good. Any, any amount that you can offset is benefit to children that, that otherwise they would not have had. And remember, we know how to build and deliver interventions. And that is really important this year. You know, if you can hand the teacher the right content for the child because you you know the child, you have some little bit of assessment data with the child. If you know, if you ideally you have a hybrid situation or before you have a disruption, you have some information, you can equip the teacher with the right intervention. The teacher can use the learning platform, Google Classroom, Seesaw to connect with the child and do that FaceTime. Yeah, such good points. And um, we have a question here um, asking, could you say something about addressing the anxiety of parents who are afraid to send their children to school, even in communities with low positivity rates? Yes, poor parents, right? I mean, and I think about it helps it help to become a parent for me. <laughs> I knew it all before I had my own children. <laughs> Now I can relate. I mean, you know, it's it, I've even you know, been because I've been so clear about the data, you know, and I've said to my husband, I'm really comfortable about this. And then I said, well, maybe we shouldn't let Ben 
I mean, do you, how do you feel about this? And then he said, well, the data, (laughs) I mean, it is, it's, you know, everything changes when it's your child. There's another level, level of anxiety to that, that, that is not logical. It does not matter. You know, um, John Hosp says, don't bring data to a faith fight. So when you engage with parents, which you will be asked to do, because if they're really anxious, we see this every year anyway, because we see parents who are afraid to send their children to school. It's, it's more rare. <laughs> it's, there's a less sort of socially valid and accepted reason in past years, because, um, you know, realistically, most children um, are safe at school, typically. So you'll be asked to talk to these parents and it's helpful to remember that presenting them with the facts is very unlikely to allay the anxiety, but you know, I mean, obviously that's like school psych 101, right? But um, but it can be hard. We all get tempted to, you know, sort of say, well, let me just explain why you're wrong to feel this way. <laughs> that doesn't help. And this year more than ever, we, you know, we have to recognize there's so much we don't know. Right. So I do think it's like working with a teacher with anxiety. It's sort of what is your energy? How are you feeling? And I I guess at the end of the day, most I'm not aware of any school system that is not allowing parents to exercise the right to go full virtual with their child. So I think we might not um, see cases that cannot really be successfully collaborated with and worked with because those parents will just choose to keep their children home and do a virtual instruction situation. So I think we could be maybe pulled in or involved when it's softer than that. And there's there's a chance to sort of really, in its natural, normal fear. I mean, most people are afraid. If you watch CNN, you will be so afraid, right? And so I think it's just sort of um, listening, validating, asking what's the worst that can happen. Let's talk through this. What what can make you feel better? What can we identify? How do you think your child feels about this? What's a step you think you could take? Can we map that out? How can I help? And it's successive approximations and exposure. I, you know, again, all of this is out of my lane. I mean, I'm a math, I'm a math intervention person. But guess what? There's a lot of anxiety in math, so so I can um, I can relate. And and parents really, you know, have a right to to have their feelings about protecting, wanting to protect their child, and worry about their child, right? It's so reassuring. I mean, I, I just think, just like Rachel said earlier, just your post and your perspective this whole time has been so calming to me because, you know, I've gone up and down. And just like you said, if I'm watching TV for too too long, you know, then I'm convinced that I've got to figure out how to be virtual again. And, you know, and so yeah. um, this information is powerful. And yes, we, we have to have a little bit of acceptance that it's going to be probably more scary at first. And less as we, you know, find our, you know, our uh, comfort zone um, within all the safety routines and procedures. So, yeah. And I think, you know, more than ever, schools are, you know, they're safe haven for kids. My my heroes were always my teachers. Miss Malden in third grade, Miss Petty in sixth grade. I mean, I'm still in touch with them. And they said things to me that that put wind in my sails you know, in ways that 
you know, I didn't get elsewhere in the world. And so teachers, that's why we really need teachers to understand they are so essential. They are, they are as essential as any nurse or doctor or food provider. I mean, this is life force for children. This is um, the economic gateway for children. These are places for children to be safe and supervised, ideally, right? This is our opportunity to really make a difference for children and families. And that's why I have been so obsessed about not just saying, that's it, everybody shut down. To me, that's such a position of privilege because so many children will be unsupervised, untended, unsafe, uncared for in some ways. There may not be an adult at home. They may not eat consistently. They may not, um, you know, in, in Los Angeles Unified last spring at the secondary level, 33% of kids did not log in consistently. So when I hear people talk about we need, you know, and some of our, I tell you what, I've, I'm like a Twitter fan of some folks who I just adore. And I don't want to say their name because I don't want to call them out, but you know, they're such advocates and I love the passion and I'm like such a super fan of them. But like one of the things that I saw somebody saying we need to get for kids is a device and internet connection for every kid. And I get it, but it's not enough. It's not enough because if 33% of kids never signed in, did not sign in consistently, then who knows what they're doing, right? Unsupervised. They're certainly not learning. They're probably not doing Khan Academy on the side. So so yeah, I mean, schools are safe havens for kids and we want to get, we want to get kids back and learning as quickly as possible. That was great. Um, Rebecca, I, I sort of echo the same sentiment. Your words, Amanda brought, you know, some logic and comfort. <laughs> so I think, I think it was really good. Um, I know we're just about out of time. There was a comment by Dr. Sherry Proctor that I really appreciated. I love uh, she, her. I know, I do too. She's <laughs> awesome. She will be back she in is. September with uh, Charles right. Barrett, Dr. Barrett also. Good, I'll watch. <laughs> so, yeah, we're excited to speak with them again. And she had just mentioned that uh, many graduate educators will be trying to guide um, school psych students as well, how to negotiate their roles in the upcoming year. And it just reminded me, I will have an intern this year, and so many of us will have practicum students and interns. So there's probably a lot for us to be where, beware of, be wary of, be supportive of, and uh, really help our graduate students um, navigate their new roles uh, in the midst of this. A, a great opportunity, too, for them to learn. Yes, so. right? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, we've told our kids to keep it, you know, we've had them keep trying it. Well, they didn't consistently do it, but keep a journal. This is this is historical. Right. What, what you have lived through is historical. It's not unprecedented, as it turned out, because the flu pan pandemic from 1918 was very comparable. But I mean, it was 1918. It was 100 years ago. So this is historical. And, and you're right. It's such an opportunity because, like we said, this sort of this notion of, you know, teaching classroom routines around safety, that that will translate to other to other um routines in the in future years. So, you know, we're, I'm, I get to work with other people's graduate students. I, I still, you know, do a lot of research and love to do research. And so we're doing some virtual um, 
intervention research this year around math and we're doing some um, research with um, in, with Robin Cotting and her students in mm. Boston and then some research with Rob Richardson in um, Tennessee. And I'm excited about that, but, um, but it is an opportunity for these graduate students to fight, learn new ways to connect and work with kids. And maybe we'll learn some things about working with kids virtually that will benefit. Maybe we won't always have these underwhelming data with things like existing intervention tools because we'll learn how to do it, to do it better. So I love what you said. I think that's a good message for grad students is to say, you know, yes, it's kind of scary and, but I'm here. We'll, we'll figure this out together. And it's also somewhat exciting because you've got this great opportunity to make a real difference. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, as always. Yeah. Um, and we, we had a sweet little shout out from Dr. Proctor too. She said she loves us too. <laughs> so. She's the best. She, yeah. she's, I mean, I've known her for a long time and I just I've always loved her, her work especially, but I love her energy because I think she's, her. she really inspires people to try, you know, to take action. That's, yeah. that's it. You know, it's a lot of, um, to me, there's such a logical connection between MTSS work and social justice work, mm -hmm. but it's the action piece that she's really like about, you got to take action. You can't just, you know, <laughs> and I love it. That's wonderful. Well, um, I want to say uh, third week in September, might be Dr. Barrett and Dr. Proctor. I don't have the date in front of me, but I think we have coming up um, Cecil Reynolds uh, early in September and then um, Drs. Barrett and Proctor um, later in September, I believe. Um, but uh, Rachel looks like she's- 920 is 920, okay. Fantastic. And NAS passed some resources. You know, you might want to mention to people, they have do, they do have some return to school resources yeah. that people can access and some webinars, some written materials that give sort of tactical advice. And this is, I think our, this was a lovely conversation, but you know, if you want more sort of tactical how to, mm -hmm. that's a good place to go. If, if people are um, interested in understanding some of like what we've spelled out for back to school formats, you know, I, feel free to reach out and I can um, connect you with, some free webinar or some materials that we have, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you. That's great. Well, we are so grateful to have you on again, and I'm sure we'll be asking you to come back <laughs> for another, especially once your second edition of your book is out. So yeah, um, I'm sure this there'll year, be I hope. <laughs> lots, lots to talk to you about. Um, we do, uh, quickly want to uh, thank our sponsor as well, Advanced School Staffing. So before we go, uh, just we want to again thank Advanced School Staffing for their continued support of school psychologists nationwide. As the leader in school staffing nationwide, the genuine care, benefits, and guidance that they demonstrate with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. So to learn more about Advanced School Staffing and discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, please visit advancedschoolstaffing.com slash school psyched exclamation point. So again, thank you so much, Amanda. And um, yes, let's keep these conversations going. I think uh, as Rebecca said, our emotions will, you know, roller coaster. We need to keep talking and encouraging one another and sharing that with our staff and students and their, their families. So we so appreciate your words tonight. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Thank you. Good night.